This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We have a whole hour dedicated to today's guest, Bartholomew Jones, who is the founder of Coffee Black and also a musical artist who just put out an album under the same name this year. We have a really incredible conversation about the history of coffee, uh, how it is tied to black culture, how it originally came from Africa, how it was stolen, and uh, the business of coffee, and also about his creativity, his pursuits in life. And it's just a really in-depth, amazing, really special conversation. We're so excited that he gave us so much time and sat down with us. Uh, Thank you so much to Kat Johnson for putting us in touch. We really appreciate it. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Never played your rise, the ghost in me jump. My car. 
totter the earth, the whole plot. What's better than death? A whole life. What if I sever my breath? I hope not. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. We are so excited to be sitting down with Bartholomew Jones, whose song opened up the the show, Coffee Black, which is also the name of his business. Uh, Bartholomew, welcome to Snacky Tunes. What's up, man? Thanks for having me, yo. Of course. So first, most important question, have you had your coffee this morning? What did you drink? Uh, right now, I'm drinking um, uh, Ethiopian coffee from the Sadamo region, specifically like the Wush Wush portion of the Sadamo region. So we're mm. we're we're doing some sample roast uh, right now, picking a new coffee for the year. So uh, we got like seven seven coffees to sample. So I'm just drinking this. I had I did it on Kalita Wave this morning. Um, tried it on AeroPress yesterday. It's kind of good. It's got like the strawberry rhubarb vibe, and um, then kind of like a. Um, like a like a mint chocolate chip ice cream after finish or mm. after taste. So I'm digging it. I'm digging it. It might be too too kind of weird for our customer base. Um, yeah, but yeah, you know, I'm it's, excited it's, about it's, it. it. I personally like it. Yeah, I mean, especially someone who knows coffee so well. Um, there's the stuff that you like, and then the stuff that's probably going to sell to people who just never think of coffee more than just coffee. Yeah. And our customer base is kind of like the mix of those two groups. And so I try to pick coffees that I think people could drink every day. That's interesting on different, um, different methods, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, I'm super excited because I got two bags of your coffee, Guji Main, on my way to my house right now. Let's go. I am. I mean, so I was watching your piece, um, on the black history of coffee and uh, I saw you pouring it up, and I was like, oh, that looks like really good coffee. <laughs> it is, man. It is. And so, um, yeah. And, you know, look, I, I really loved the piece you did because, I'll be honest, I did not know much about the history of coffee. My own personal experience was growing up in the suburbs of Philly, thinking that coffee came out of a Seattle coffee shop in the 90s. Man. Just magically appeared, but you, you know, you give the history of it, which is a really, I would say, uh, rough and violent history of coffee, um, with it being stolen from Africa. And I'd love for you just to share a little bit of the history of coffee so that people understand, I guess, what we're really going to talk about over the next hour or so. Yeah, so coffee was discovered, um, and I guess what's currently known as Ethiopia, that region of the world is known by many names, Kush, Abyssinia, um, you know, different different names. But uh, basically, uh, it was discovered there by a gentleman, as the story goes, a gentleman named Kaldi, who was a goat herder. Uh, he was from the Oromo ethnic group in Ethiopia, which is currently um, an oppressed people group in Ethiopia and other parts of Eastern Africa. Um, but at the time he was just a goat herder, you know, he was, he was from his tribe. He, well, not, they're not actually a tribe, they're an ethnic group. And so, yeah, his goats stumbled upon these red cherries, the red cherries, uh, energized the goats, the goats were jumping all over the place. And so that made him curious. Um, and after that point, you know, the, the bean gets introduced into a larger Ethiopian, um, culture and it begins to be a part of their daily rituals. So it becomes at this point, they're not boiling it or anything like that. 
um, mm. is mostly being crushed. And I, I don't know if you ever had like an energy ball, like peanut butter, oatmeal, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. raisins. They would make a similar thing using uh, crushed coffee cherries uh, with the coffee seeds inside um, because coffee is a seed, not necessarily a bean. Um, right. And so, yeah. And then they would use ghee, which is kind of like a, a distilled butter. Um mm-hmm. And so they would mix those two things up um, and occasionally put other items in there. And then they would use that as like a stimulant when they were going to war, as a celebratory thing, when they were going to hunt or when there was like a community event. You know, over time, it becomes something that uh, people begin to brew into a liquid substance. And there are other parts of the world that are participating in this. So, you know, that region, you have Ethiopia, uh, which currently, I mean, at this point, you have Eritrea, Ethiopia and Djibouti. Um, and then you also had Yemen across the Red Sea. Um, and once you get into Yemen, you're really, really, I mean, you're, are you in Africa? Are you in the Middle East? You know, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a closer conference. This is Northern Africa. So there's a lot of uh, intermixing there. And so then the, 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 the fruit can get passed to other parts of the world. So you have this actually really multicultural mix of people all enjoying this thing that was discovered by these black people in Ethiopia from the Oromo ethnic group. And um, in 1616, the Dutch um, sent two spies to the port of Mocha in Yemen to steal uh, coffee seeds. They end up successfully stealing those coffee seeds and then cultivating a colonized uh, colonized farm in Java. And so if you've ever heard the term Java, that's because in Indonesia, the, the place Java um, was one of the first colonies where coffee was forced to be grown by a European country. Um And so this practice becomes normalized with a lot of other European countries. So at this point, when you look at where coffee grows, if it's not in Ethiopia, uh, Djibouti, Yemen, maybe Kenya, um, or or, I think I hit them all, Eritrea, uh, or Sudan, Sudan, then it's probably there because some country colonized the indigenous people groups there and forced them to grow coffee. Um, So yeah, like uh, Brazil... um, Honduras, uh, Indonesia, uh, you know, all these places, coffee has been transplanted through colonization. And so kind of that's that's the basic history behind it. The reason why the Dutch wanted to steal it, you might ask yourself, well, why would they steal it? Why wouldn't they just come and, you know, you can go to Lowe's mm-hmm. right now and get a seed for whatever you want. So why don't they just go buy coffee seeds? It's because the countries that were growing it in Africa uh, were holding on to the financial power of that seed and so they would sell you right. um infertile seeds or beans if you wanted to roast them yourself let's say you had a cafe you know you're in um i don't know italy and you have a cafe and you want to sell coffee well you can um there it's possible for you to purchase you know 400 pounds 500 pounds however many you want of infertile seeds roast them at your cafe sell them but they wouldn't sell you the seeds to grow one because you need a certain elevation to grow coffee anyway and so if um the coffee plant starts getting grown everywhere the fruit is not going to be of the same quality and then two because again like that's a that's that's a large amount of wealth that you would be giving up a monopoly on so as a country countries are dependent on ex- dependent upon exports so why would you if you have a, a, a huge export that's a part of your economy why would you just give someone <laughs> the the foundation right. plans for them to cripple your economy? Um, but yeah, so so Dutch people came and stole it. Um, and unfortunately, that pattern is seen as many other countries get the seed either from the Dutch or from other places and then use it as a means to colonize the rest of the world, pretty much. 
and using that wealth and using that power and taking that wealth and power away from African countries, it becomes a pattern, but also coffee becomes a cash crop. Yeah, coffee is the largest, um, after oil, coffee is the largest industry on the planet. So it's a $100 billion yep. export, right? Um, right. And so... Ironically, one of our, um, one of my, one of my, um, I guess, educators, one of the people who spent time, I've, I've just studied what she's done. It's a Congolese woman in Canada who owns a uh, coffee and a mikate spot. It's called Coffee and Mikate. So it's basically like coffee and beignets. And she sells Congolese coffee. But she has this project, I think it's called the Coffee Project. And she did some infographics about essentially how. Um, coffee is a hundred billion dollar industry, which is also the same amount of money right now that's budgeted for the foreign aid or the foreign relief uh, budget worldwide. And a lot of these countries that are impoverished, it's just crazy how it's so similar, but these countries that are impoverished are mostly poor because of the colonialistic practices that have disrupted mm. their economy. And so now there's a, there's a, there's a foreign aid budget that is the same value of the crop that was stolen from these countries or forced upon these countries. And so um, her whole thing is, man, that's not sustainable. It's kind of de, uh, dehumanizing to constantly be receiving uh, foreign aid for forever. Um, you know, in America, we have the conversation about um, welfare, but there's a, there's a, a global welfare state and people are forced to um, participate in this and not given the tools that were taken from them that they need to be able to sustain themselves. And so she was mm -hmm. like, man, if we were actually allowed more people to engage in their own, um, their own industries and start owning the things that get exported from their countries at ridiculously cheap prices, then we actually might see um, more empowerment and a reduction in the global, global, um, the global welfare state. And so I think that those things are powerful, especially when you consider the opportunities, right? The, the families who could start businesses and the children yeah. who could become, you know, internationally educated, uh, when it comes coffee is an international good. And so there's so many opportunities to travel, to meet other people, to better yourself, um, in this industry, like, um, it's normal for people in what is called third wave coffee uh, to take origin trips. You know what I mean? And to go to a yeah. place where the coffee is grown. But imagine if you had black and brown people at origin taking trips to visit other countries that are similar to theirs. And they're discussing the economic state of their country and they're able to create ideas on how to improve their businesses and you had poor people in the ghettos of America taking these trips and figuring out how to create businesses with other people who are dealing with similar situations globally. Um, all of this is done without asking for a bit of aid. <laughs> you know, all of this could be done without yeah. asking for a, a drop of a donation or anything. They're actually selling something that the whole world wants, you know? Um, so I, it's a powerful opportunity and we're just inspired by it. I mean, talking about business and inspiration, uh, I'd love to hear more about the story behind your own coffee business, Coffee Black. Um, you know, what made you want to start it? And, you know, being in Memphis, which is not what um, the first city that comes to mind when you think of a coffee town, but how does it represent Memphis? Right, right. And you know, what made you want to get uh, into coffee? Well, I think for me, it just comes down to imagination. So when I was in... Um when I was in college, I went to Wheaton College, which is like a small liberal arts college outside of Chicago. 
And um, I grew up in Memphis my whole life, you know, never went to coffee shops outside of like Starbucks in high school to get Frappuccinos. My dad sure. was a big coffee drinker and he 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 loves Ethiopia, not Ethiopia, he loves Kenyan coffee. And so he had like tried to introduce me to that when I was younger. I have no idea how my dad got into Kenya, uh, to Kenyan coffee. You know, it's either two things. One, he took a trip to Kenya when he was in college. So he got introduced there. Uh, sure. or it was one of our church members. He always tried to get me to drink it. I was never into it. Um, you know, the closest I might come to it is a caramel, uh, caramel like mac- macchiato. Um, but anyway, I-, I go to college. I'm introduced to a lot of coffee. Co- Chicago's a big coffee town, Intelligentsia, Dark Matter. Um, so I was kind of introduced to coffee there. And then um, as I was going to these coffee shops, uh, I was an elementary education major. So I was going there to either work on lesson plans or I'm also a rapper, a musician and a, like a like mm-hmm. a sort of an activist. And so I'll, I'll either be there like organizing with people or writing raps or uh, working on schoolwork, lesson plans and stuff. I just noticed there weren't a lot of black people there. And it was never like a negative experience. I always like to say this because I think there's kind of like this. uh Sometimes people want to hear this like black trauma porn where it's like, what happened? Was it terrible? You know, it was like nothing, nothing terrible happened. Nobody jumped me like the, the clan members didn't show up at the coffee shop yeah. or anything like that. You know, it was just like um, I just thought it was weird. And so it was a question in the back of my mind. But meanwhile, I'm falling in love with coffee. Right. I'm starting to enjoy it more. I moved back to Memphis. My wife is um, I mean, my wife, we get married our first Christmas. She buys me an espresso machine. Now I'm really fascinated. I'm kind of a nerd at heart. That's an important thing to know about me is like I've always been into like little nerdy stuff like comic books or mm. anime or like anything that like is kind of niche. I would just gravitate towards it. And so when I found um, coffee, it was obviously niche. And so I was just got really into like all the little details of it and finding out all the information I could and kicking it at coffee shops. I probably spent like four or $5,000 after that first Christmas just buying equipment. And that was a big deal because when you grow up poor, I would say we probably go up lower middle class. Um, you just don't spend money on things that aren't necessities. And so right. spending um, money on coffee when you could just buy, you know, instant coffee at the store was something that was super strange. So my wife was the first one to kind of show me, wow, you can actually spend money on this. She kind of like gave me permission. Um, And, you know, I don't do anything about without my wife's permission. (laughs) So after she did, I was like, wow, okay, cool. I spent all this. Right. You're foolish if you do. Um, So like, yeah, I did all this stuff with coffee and just started meeting everybody in the local scene and asking questions and just being there all the time. Um, and as I started to do this, you know, I'm still noticing, Hmm, there's not many other black people here or there are no black people here. And again, no negative experiences, just a question. Like why aren't there more black people at coffee shops? And that question led to several other questions, which eventually led me to, I think the question that started us to push us to start coffee black, which is like, what would happen if there was a black coffee brand? Like, what would that look like? Mm. Uh, what would it sound like? What would it feel like? Would people respond to it? Would there be mostly white support? Would black people come out and feel like this is something that's for them? And so we were in the studio um, earlier last year, and I was working on a series of like improvisational um, hip hop songs, uh, one of which I sent to you. So I'm, I'm excited for you to hear that. But yeah, I was working on this series of improv- live improvisation songs. And um, my DJ at the time, who was kind of curating the experience, 
at his studio had used to work for a ball and mjg who are big memphis rap artists and um you know he was also strangely into coffee a lot and so we would go to like the, the like the bougie coffee shop down the street in like the gentrified neighborhood or whatever and grab our coffee before we go to the studio and then we brew up at the studio we actually ended up getting like a little mini sponsorship from a local coffee shop they would like give us coffee for each week um but we were just really into it and as we were working on music one day he was like yo what if we came out with a coffee and called it Gucci Mane? Um, and it was it was hilarious because we're in the studio making rap music in the same studio that like these southern rap legends like A Ball and MJG have been to and smoked out and just like had this very southern rap experience and we're making coffee here. And so those two things kind of coalesced in that moment and we were like, okay, wow, this would be super dope. At the time I was a barista um in my short stint as a barista uh, and i had been a home barista for like four or five years just due to my wife's influence and so i knew i could make really good coffee but i didn't know how to roast coffee long story short i get connected through another rapper in chicago to a roaster who had just moved back in memphis his name is kenny baker he has a company called ethnos coffee so kenny becomes the roaster for our company um as well as continuing to do things for his company so we collaborated and then that's how Gucci Man came to be, bro. We had 50 pounds. It was supposed to be a pop-up. Those 50 pounds sold uh, in less than 10 days to 90% young Black creatives. And so we're like, nice. wow, okay, there's, there's a demand for this. And so people kept asking us, and we kept just doing another 25 pounds and another 50 pounds until it got to a point where we are like, man, okay, we got to keep doing this. And, uh, you know, I was still teaching. You know, I was still doing all of that. Um, yeah. But we were doing concerts. We were trying to create these just imaginative black experiences in coffee. So, you know, a lot of my music looked at the parallel between the black experience and the coffee experience. Um, and then we were creating concerts at, at different coffee shops. And we would do have these like all we have all black baristas behind the bar and uh, kind of reimagine the space. Um and then we started doing these coffee classes where we basically, it's called a brew up. It's like a coffee cipher. So you get all the coffee. We normally try to get black owned roasters, get a bunch of them, get everybody in a circle. We have a DJ playing there. My other DJ, um, DJ HD3, great dude. He produced a lot of the music on the album too. So he'll DJ. The community will invite the community out. People will come. They'll get to try coffee. My wife is there with her company. She's from Memphis. And so she makes do the like, t-shirts, right? She does all yeah, the, the merch. The yeah, she does everything dope about our company. I just talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, man. Like, we did that. And those were really amazing. Started having these amazing conversations about uh, coffee and gentrification and uh, globalization. And, you know, one of the most interesting things that came out of those talks was, like, what is the difference between good coffee and cheap coffee? So a lot of times people say... Um, man, if you're doing a business with poor people, you got to make sure things are affordable, which means cheap, right? Generally, it means lower quality. Generally, it means the people at origin who are producing these goods, because America doesn't produce very much, are getting paid less. And so we're actually perpetuating poverty in another country if we make it cheaper here, unless you're cutting out the middleman. But when you're talking about coffee, that's harder, right? So then it's said, yeah. well, okay, let's present good coffee. Uh, and so then it's like, well, does good coffee have to be expensive? Is there a solution to that? We don't have the answer to that, but the community asks that question. I think it's a valuable question to ask because if we're taking crappy coffee and then just kind of giving it to the poor people, like they, that doesn't sound good when you say it out loud. Uh, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's like there's got to be a solution, though, because you don't want to you don't want to create this luxury item. 
um, and like price people out either. And so, you know, solutions, I don't know. Those are things that we're, we're excited to continue to dialogue about and talk about what is it like, can you have a coffee shop without gentrification or can you have positive gentrification? Like those are all things we're excited about. And, and, you know, we're making streetwear and trying to create new clothes that are coffee themed for the culture. And, um, yeah. like it just became a really cool experience. And, um, I was still working at teaching, my, we had started this wonderful art school in the neighborhood my dad grew up. I was basically a rap teacher. So my job was literally just to find kids and do arts integration with them and fight, figure out how they can use the arts they're passionate about in their classes. And uh, that school closed due to lack of funding, as most things do, uh, which is one okay. of the reasons why I wanted to get into get away from nonprofit work. I was just really frustrated. I've been so frustrated even before we were at this school with seeing good things, good opportunities you know, good students, good teachers, good principals who uh, are forced into uh, either continuing oppression that's been done to them or at the very least not doing a good thing they could do because they don't have the funds or because, quote unquote, oh, you know, they won't let us do that. And uh, whether mm-hmm. they is the school board or they is whoever's providing the national grants or there's always someone who's in the way who can't give the money. Who, and I just always found that strange, especially working at schools where I was, where it was mostly all black people. And still we found that felt like we couldn't do what we needed to do for black students and black communities. And so I think a big part of that is because we didn't con- we didn't have control over our financial structure. And so um, business has kind of turned. I've never been a businessman. I've just stumbled into it. but business has become this place where I felt way more freedom to do whatever, you know, whatever I want, whatever I can imagine, any idea God gives me, if I can figure out a way to make it profitable, we can do it, you know? And um, even if I can't make it profitable, I can consider it a charitable donation (laughs) and do it anyway. (laughs) You know, and so this has been just this grand experiment for us. It's been really fun. Um, I can show my old students how to make money. You know, my dream is, we just purchased this lot, uh, this empty lot next to us in the hood. We're trying to buy back the block. And we imagine building a new home for ourselves with an Airbnb on the side and space mm. in the back for us to put, have a coffee roastery, barista training space and things where we can train kids in the neighborhood. And to be able to kind of have like a starter school where we just take kids in high school through how to start their own online brand. You know, we can walk them through how to do it through coffee, through apparel, through creating podcasts, through recording your own music. Like the the opportunities are endless. And, you know, we're a debt free company, so we don't operate on credit. We operate on operate on revenue. And all my rich friends tell me I'm stupid, but I ain't never been rich, man. So, you know, I'm like, they're like, you should use other people's money. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm doing what I think seems right to us and it's worked so far. And there may be a day where we start using more credit, but it's been fun. Again, like for me, everything is about imagination. Um, I had a college professor who told me I studied sociology in college and he was like, or in undergrad anyway, not graduate school. I just studied education in grad school. In undergrad, he was like, man, I really want you as a Korean guy named Dr. Kim. And he was a big, he had a big emphasis on the Christian imagination and the sociological imagination and how those two things could be used to create a better, a better world. And I think those things have really influenced my art and then subsequently my business that came out of my art, um, which is just imagination and thinking about when I read my, the scriptures of my faith, I look at, you know, the, a description of how the world should be and then start mm-hmm. imagining, you know, ways for us to get there. And I don't know if it works. It's coming from my imagination, but it's been really cool to see some of those things actually become materialized and see the Lord breathe life into, you know, things like a black, 
coffee brand, <laughs> which yeah. didn't exist uh, at the time, but it started with just wondering if it could and what it would look like, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play Energy uh, by you. Um, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk oh. about uh, the business of it and um, black coffee culture. And just uh, we're going to eventually also get to the music that you're making to the album you put out. Oh, yeah. We just dropped a song today, actually. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, then we'll call that a Snacky Tunes uh, exclusive. Here we go. First up, we got Energy Bartholomew Jones here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. The other day I saw a man. He told me to take a loan out. I said, what it look like? Yo, yo, we got the energy to generate a situation, save a nation, make a people wanna hit the slide, slide. Make me wanna turn and have electric pop your sucker side. I'ma have to let you know we ride, ride. Anybody wanna take me off my square, gon' have to come and put some hands on your boy. Yeah, if you wanna see me come around with the double double sound, you gon' see me with all of my boys, boys. Yeah, we ride deep up in the clutch for real, and we bringin' the type of energy that you. Gon' feel. I got the avatar stands, plus the Goku hands. I wish you would come yeah, and take my yeah, plans. Yeah, nah, nah, we I got, got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate. Ain't no man. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generating, kinda like a pergolator. Got me feeling super saying in the situation. You know what I'm saying. You know that I'm praying. You know that this savior coming to save us all from the situation. They praying like, man, tish, they want me to stand this. I cannot, I'd rather be with my clan. This is a situation where I might have to go Conan on them. You know they wanna get my woman off of this. This is the new tribalism. Anybody's welcome. Which refusion of the mission from Yeshua Vision? Special being canon to any on Steve Bannon. That's an otherworldly power to plow through they wicked planet. Uh, we bring the rich to the poor. I bring you good news or more. When you growing up with the store, isn't the limit, of course. I grow it like my maker. I got the queen like Sheba. We making new Jamaica. Bringing blue mountain flavors. Like the stuff in your cup. So what's up? Yeah, just cut to a rug. Cause you know we got the plug. Nah, 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 nah. Like the stuff in your cup, so what's up? Yeah, just cut you a rug, cause you know you got the plug. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, ain't no man. We got the energy generate, energy generate, energy generate, baby. We got the energy generate. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Bartholomew Jones here, Coffee Black, and I want to get back to some of the things that you you touched on briefly um, in the, our first part of our conversation, 
which is, you know, being okay with having a business, making profit, um, but then also really creating and and adding into um, black coffee culture. And you're seeing a lot more uh, black coffee um, focus shops that have been opening up around the country in a, let's be honest, a business that was predominantly run, you know, by white people um, for mm-hmm. the majority part of like coffee's popularity. And I'd love for you to talk right. to us about the difference of like a black coffee shop or a, something that is focused around um, the culture um, and how that is represented. Because I've always felt that coffee shops are probably one of the most, especially the independent ones, the most personal examples of someone's personality turned into a business right <laughs> yeah and, and then we can touch on the 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 is it as an outsider it's easy to kind of see some of the you know my cousin brandis daniels is uh doing amazing things in the fashion industry through her company harlem yeah. fashion row and she recently gave a ted, TED talk about how um there's a power in being an outsider and she actually came and spoke to my students about this too mm. we had studied her ted talk and wrote some papers for her back when I was teaching in Orange Mound. And I think now that I'm in the coffee industry as an outsider, I see the power in that. Just because I'm able to notice things and kind of see trends that other people, it's just in the water for everybody else. So um, I like to, I like to say, we'll we'll start with this. So I think a lot of coffee shops, like you said, for the people who are creating them are these very personal experiences. But for (laughs) someone who's outside of it, they all look the same. (laughs) <laughs> like in third wave coffee right. shops they all pretty much look the same and i think i had a conversation with some friends a while back about just how there is a is your marketing toward a certain demographic when you start a third wave shop period and the reason why i say that is because when you when you look at minimalism edison lights you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh st- yep. standing bars uh uh really uncomfortable seats um, like these are, <laughs> these are uh, 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 not accepting cash. Like when we look at these trends, these are uh, visco filters. Like these are not things that are created in a vacuum, right? They didn't just come ex nihilo, right? This someone created an idea sure. and an aesthetic that was uh, marketable to a certain demographic of people. And so, black coffee culture is really. At least what we hope is is that it's is something that a lot of time, even when people don't try to do it intentionally, I feel like it's is really just trying to just be coffee culture. And when I say coffee culture, I mean mm. coffee in and of itself is a black thing, right? And so right. coffee has been colonized from the from from its original indigenous origin and then kind of turned into a consumeristic experience. Um, and so most black people, without even trying it, that I've met in the industry. Are, tr- are just naturally doing what Black people were doing with coffee before it was colonized, which is using it as a part of their community. And I don't think that's something mm. that something that's indig- indigenous to, or I think only indigenous to Black people. I think a, a lot of the dopest coffee people I know, period, you know, the words coffee and community both start with the letter C, and I don't think that's the only reason why you see them come up a lot when people talk about coffee, right? Like right. Um, like people, people in general see there's a connectivity that's actually scientific, right? When you look at the fact that coffee is a stimulant, people generally consume stimulants in groups, right? They don't consume, consume stimulants in isolation. So whether you're talking about cocaine, whether you're talking about alcohol, whether you're talking about 
you know, anything you want, an aphrodisiac. People consume these things in groups because they create human connectivity, right? And so when your brain and the dopamine senses in your brain are triggered, that sense, that 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 uh, experience is heightened when you're in close proximity to other human beings and into society. And so, like historically, when you look at the Aromo culture, which is the the people group who discovered coffee, coffee was a way of connecting with creation. So it was seen as a way to connect with your neighbor, a way to connect with your family, a way to connect with nature, a way to connect with the divine. It was seen as a very connective uh, substance. And so. Um, even when you look at the history of coffee as it moves to places like Paris and things like that, coffee becomes even a romantic connective experience where mm. coffee begins to be seen in places where people are falling in love or building relationships. Coffee has always had this natural human connective aspect. And again, I think that's due to the fact that it's a stimulant. And so most most, uh, most black people in, in the businesses that I've seen um, like people with the the coffee enthusiast or the chocolate barista or Lanisa at South uh, South Central Cafe, I believe it's the name of her. But she's um, the oh man, I can't remember her name. But yeah, Lanisa, she's also in Sprudge Twenty. Um, a lot of other really dope friends who are all in the coffee industry um, are seeing coffee as a way to bring their community together. Even a guy, Keijan Franklin, who's here in Memphis, he's starting a, a, a coffee truck. Um, he's seeking to create safe spaces for black people to connect. So co- black coffee culture, and I know this because I've done the research, but I, I see this period just, I think it's one of those natural ontological things that people just do because it's a part of their DNA or a part of their makeup. People, black people are trying to see, see coffee as a part of the black experience period. And so it's not, there's not this, um, this kind of remixing of what's happening in general coffee by black people is more so of a, a leaving the remix that currently is third wave coffee and returning to some of the original tunes that were played by the greats in coffee history, mm, specifically I looking at like the Oromo culture. When we look at coffee in Ethiopian families, when we look at coffee and Eritrean families and Yemeni families, like coffee is something that's served almost three times a day. Uh, much like the British people would think about tea. And it's something that is just prepared um, oftentimes by the women of the house. So we can take a a moment and shout out black women because in Ethiopia, Yemen, um, they're doing the work of four to five coffee professionals. (laughs) They're sourcing coffee, roasting coffee. They're a barista and they're an expert in the process of figuring out how to sustainably do a whole situation like that. And so like there, um, there's like four or five different people's jobs in third wave coffee, but you have black women doing this daily, right. And, and, and where it was created, because again, one of the things you have to recognize about Western culture is Western culture is uh, a lot of ways uh, pays a lot of its debt to the enlightenment. And so when we look at the enlightenment, a big part of it was elevating the reason of humanity, specifically white humanity over and above that of the rest of creation. And so classification becomes a big thing. Even when we look at Darwin, when he begins to classify humans, right. Based on, what he perceives to be their jaw structure, driving by Madagascar. He's like, oh, those black people must be lower, elevated from lower forms of light or uh, evolved from lower forms of light. And a lot of times classification can be very damaging when it's done in a, in a bubble, right? When you're classifying things without doing that in community with people, mm-hmm. it can be very othering to, to people. And so we see that 
in coffee, coffee's turned into this really classified, mechanized, scientific experience, which, I mean, I'm going to be honest, that's part of what I like about it. It's part of what, what excites the nerd in me. I always introduce oh, yeah. myself as a coffee nerd. But we have to realize that is only valuable to a certain extent, and it cannot represent the fullness of coffee because that's not what it was originally, right? And so it would be dehumanizing for me to take your original intent as a human um, and turn you into something that uh, is not what you are, me to refer to you by a different name or pronoun or whatever that you don't prefer, right? That would be a very harmful experience for you. So same with coffee. Coffee has originated. It has an original purpose. So when we take it and refer to it in a means that it was not created to be or not not generated as originally, it can be very harmful. And a lot of times we don't know why, right? We're not sure, but we can see that the culture that is in coffee oftentimes is very discriminatory, right? And, and we see that yeah. right now with La Mars Loco, uh, with Counterculture and a lot of these other big brands, Barista Hustle, that are being outed because of, in my opinion, something that is embedded in the DNA of the very approach to the good in the first place, right? Which is built on this colonialistic, empirical, imperial uh, uh, elevation of white reason over and above that of the human family in general. And so black coffee culture is seeking to reconnect coffee to the people group who discovered it, which is black people and integrate it into the daily things that we've been doing anyway. And so like coffee now is being imagined as a part of the hip hop experience as a part of Black education, as a part of the Black religious experience, as a part of community organizing, as a part of family life, as a part of potlucks and barbecues and all of these things, coffee is being presented not as this special thing, again, that we're kind of remixing, but more so as something that we're reclaiming and reintroducing back. It's like, a, you know, you lose you lose a family, you realize you have a lost long, a, a long lost sister, you know, and yeah. you're like, OK, we found her. Let's bring her back into the that's how black people feel about coffee in general right now. Oh, there you are, coffee. Come on back over, you know, to the barbecue. Come back to the cookout. Right. We got you. And so that's kind of where and of course, coffee has had, you know, this mirror. One of one of one of people, one of the people who inspired me is propaganda. He gave this uh, spoken word that was called if coffee was a man. Um, and, or if coffee was a woman, he said, he said, if coffee was a man, he'd be a black man. If coffee was a woman, she'd be a black woman. And he talks about how she's traveled and how she's been all around the world and how he has experienced, uh, being burned at the hands of colonizers and all these wonderful, beautiful, poetic things. And like, once you come back from those experiences, of course, you can never, uh, take that away from what coffee is today. So we're not seeking to erase uh, even the harmful past of coffee, but saying, okay, now that coffee has become what it is, let's reintroduce it. Let's imagine what it would look like to reintroduce it back to where it came from, which is from black people. Um, and you talk, so, yeah. you talk about that and the, the wealth associated with that. And you, um, you know, I know that you've, you wrote a piece on coffee reparations and also yeah. you've said that coffee can be the key to creating generational wealth across the mm -hmm. diaspora. And so beyond yep. just reclaiming it culturally, there is a financial uh, reclaiming because, um, you know, we talked about earlier that it's a hundred billion dollar international business and that coffee can yep. become something that stabilizes wealth for this generation and future generations. Um, yep. what, what is the importance of, of getting that money to stabilize generational wealth um, for the people who have experienced the diaspora? 
Yeah, I think one thing that we have to recognize is that, uh, at least from my perspective, you know, I'm a man of faith. I believe in Yahweh and, and his son, Yeshua. And so from my family's perspective, all creation has value. Every human being and everything that a human being touches has inherent value. So when we look at culture, right, culture is a product that human beings cultivate, correct? So then that culture then has value that is divine because it's transferred from the human beings who receive their divine value because they're made in the image of God. And so anything we touch, right, then is an image reflection of us, right? You even mentioned how coffee shops reflect um, or image mm-hmm. the people who are yeah. creating these businesses. So, right, culture has value. And that could just be merely a theological, philosophical conversation. But when we look at Black culture in particular, we see there is actually a monetary value to the cultural goods that we create. For instance, um, Mm -hmm. one of the, again, one person who really inspires me here in Memphis is a guy named I Make Mad Beats. He referenced a study that said that the most popular music and most profitable music in the world right now is trap music, which was created by Black people. Specifically, it was created from a type of music called crunk music, which was created in Memphis, Tennessee. By people like A Ball, MJG, Project Pat, Yo Gotti, Three Six Mafia, all these type of people, right? So now that this is a business, right? We see rappers getting, you know, ten million dollar deals, fifty million dollar deals uh, off of trap music, which at one point was just a cultural good. There was no money associated with it; it was an art form. But someone was able to see, and because of the way capitalism works, you're, all you're doing is exchanging value for money, right? So you're saying, hey, this has a certain amount of inherent value. We can uh, calculate that to be worth this many dollars, and you pay for the value that someone's giving you. You know, Gary Vee always talks about adding value. So when we, let's, let's re- we run that back to coffee now, we've already established that culture has a, has a dollar value, right? What happens when that culture then is appropriated or stolen is that people are losing wealth that they created when their culture is appropriated and then sold off to the highest bidder, people are actually losing property, right? People are losing, um, losing inheritances. And so when the credit is given or even when credit is given to the people who create it and they're not financially compensated for their contributions, like, can you imagine starting a fortune 500 company? Oh, actually, I guess we can. We've all seen the Facebook movie, but can you imagine starting a (laughs) fortune 500 company and then that company becomes super successful and somehow you're never recognized or compensated for your contributions right. on the ground level. Like, yeah, we can all recognize with the Facebook movie. Wow, that's terrible. That sucks. Mark Zuckerberg is a terrible person. Right. We can all yes, kind of recognize is. that. Uh, or we've seen the McDonald's, the, the movie about the creation of McDonald's and we can recognize these yeah. things. That's exactly what happened to black people. When you look at mm. hip hop. When you look at coffee, when you look at, I don't what let's pick a thing. When you look at uh, the African-American vernacular being used on TikTok right now, which is also a huge business, right? When, you, when things are appropriated from a people and then they're not given credit and then they're not compensated, they lose value, but then their children lose value. And I, I learned something as we purchased this property across, uh, right across from us, right? In the state of Tennessee, if you have property and you have children, when you lose your property in a tax sale, your children have the right to come back after they turn 18. And my attorney was telling me this, right? He said, your children have the right when you turn 18 to come back and claim that property regardless of who bought it, what's been built on it. They own that property and what's been done to it. And um, if your children can simply say, hey, we weren't, we weren't made aware of this. This is our inheritance. We claim it. And my attorney is, is, doesn't follow Yahweh. He's not a follower of Yeshua. But I said, brother, you preaching right now. 
Uh, <laughs> so he was telling me, you have to be careful when you purchase something sold in the tax sale because at any point, the children of the people who owned it might pop up and redeem that property, and then you will lose everything you built on that. That is what we are seeing happening in coffee right now, right? Mm. <laughs> We're seeing people right. who have built something that's been sold on a tax sale, and the children of the people who owned it originally are coming back and saying, hey, this is ours, right? And thankfully, those people are being nice. They're not saying we want to kick you off the property, but they are saying we want to begin hey, to be a part of the business. Come yeah. on, man. We want to we want to begin a part of the business and we want to be a part of the decision making that goes with something that is a part of our inheritance. And so that right there is what's happening with coffee. We're seeing it happen with hip hop as more people begin to be independent artists. We're seeing it happen with fashion through, again, what my cousin Brandis Daniels doing in Harlem Fashion Row. These things are happening uh, globally. And uh, we're seeing the consequences of when these things don't happen, when we see all these black men, black women, black trans men, black trans women being killed, black people, period, being killed on TV and on our on our social media feeds. Right. We're seeing people who are generally vulnerable and don't have access. One thing I notice is a lot of these people are being killed on property that they don't own. Right. They're being killed because they're trying to do business mm. with someone else, either on the, in their store or walking on public property or jogging in what they believe to be their neighborhood with their neighbors. And they're finding that there's violence being happened to them. And these things happen even on Juneteenth today, which is also the yeah. day that Trump wanted to uh, have his rally oh. in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I mean, where there was a black Wall Street that was destroyed. And so, like, we see that there is a need for black generational wealth, not because black people are greedy, not because black people are mean and want to take things. Because again, my the proposal no. I make through coffee doesn't require taking anything from anybody. You know, even though I do think reparations is something that can be argued for, uh, but that's a whole separate conversation. But even if we, we're not even having that conversation, we're just saying let's let, let black let black families build businesses, and if you like their yeah. products, buy their stuff. That's it. You know, no, no, we're not talking about reparations. We're not talking about communism. We're, we're talking about plain old, good old American capitalism, you know? And, you know, with $100 billion to go around, that should be enough uh, for everyone. Um, look, should. I want to take. And, the, and, yeah, and I know. That's, and, the, and the market can grow, right? It's not even like that's the cap. No, it's not. Uh, look, I want to take a quick musical break because I want to come back and I want to talk uh, about the music and the album you put out this year. Um, we have up next, which is, I think my favorite track off the album, Black Like Me. I've had the, the opening hey. hook in my, it's been stuck in my head since, I don't know, last week, two weeks now, which I, since, since I started okay. watching, uh, your okay. video, uh, but I love it and it's yeah. great. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a great piece and it talks a lot about really, I think it really fuses the coffee culture and everything we've been talking about into your music. But, uh, here we go. Bartholomew Jones, Black Like Me on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Coffee stay black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay black just like me. Coffee stay black just like me. Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream. Coffee stay black just like me. Black like me, black like me, black like me, black like me. Uh, black like me uh. 
like me, uh-huh Melanin pop like clean from sun Black like me, like Jesus, uh Oh my God, I'm seasoned, uh I thank God I ain't plain, he made me a zany way It's many colors he painted, but this mine today That I'm thanking him for It's so many hues, I might have to get two Double up on that juice Berries that carry dark magic, touched by vibranium The coffee come from Kim and this limitless like our cranium Curls, our babies ain't no baby Jesus gave me my favorite nose Cup in my covers, beauties, they got a lot with the ghost I got a lot of their heart, I got a lot for the cocoa butter to cover So I thank them for those, uh-huh Pumping the hemoglobin, they told me we black like evil So I had to stack they devils on devils I come with evils and levels, I shut they stevils To make sure that they never come back with that And then I tell them to get the cup of that black and cheap black say black just like me Don't need no sugar, don't need no cream Coffee stay black just like me This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are sitting down with Bartholomew Jones, and we've talked a lot about uh, the coffee and coffee black uh, business and the amazing coffee uh, history that you've been sharing with us. Um, but you're also an artist, uh, a musical artist, and it's very rare that we have someone on the show who is proficient in both business and also music. You usually find someone who's like, oh, I, you know, I play guitar on the side or, or I, I rap on the side or I sing on the side or you find someone who's a musical artist who's like, yeah, I, ha- I like I work at like a burrito shop or sometimes I'm a waiter. 
but you've really created this unique world and this vision that marries uh, really good coffee and really good music. Um, How did, I know that you had mentioned that you had had taught a rap class uh, at the, at the art school a while back, but what made you want to put Mm -hmm. out a whole album? What got you involved with music? Uh, You know, how did you find your voice? Yeah, man, I've been rapping with the homies since I was like 12. You know, my mom okay. and dad would get out of church. Me and my friends would be kicking it, waiting on our parents, which if you've ever been to a black church, it takes forever for our parents to actually leave <laughs> church. So church will get out and they'll say, hey, go get in the car. It's time to go. And then you'll be waiting like an hour or two. And so one of my friends ended up like becoming a DJ because he we would need, we'd be listening to music and then somebody would start freestyling. And then we were like, oh, we need a part, rewind the part of the song. So he would end up like dubbing tapes with like little beats mm. or, or portions of songs that uh, didn't have any rapping on it. And so we would do that every Sunday. You know, um, all of the songs that I showed you or particularly the live song that I sent you, is they're all improvised, right? So... Um, that's what right. we did. The reason why I can improvise songs or freestyle, um, it's just because I did that every Sunday my whole life. <laughs> um, right. And so practice. it's kind of normal. Um, yeah, practice, I guess. Yeah, practice. So, and I've had a lot 10, of really good, hours. I love jazz. Yeah, man. And I love jazz. And so like, I've heard my brother is actually a, a like a classically trained, um, musician and so at the conservatory that he learned from you know i used to go to when he had jazz i wasn't really there for the the classical musicians but whenever some when he had a jazz teacher come from chicago or something i would try to like scoot in and um yeah i had a guy say only play 10 percent of what you hear uh he was a drummer and he was talking about improvising as a jazz musician and i think i applied that to songwriting and also to freestyling and I think it, it really helped. So, like, I was into music. I was in college. And in, in college, I started realizing I suffered from depression. And so, um, you know, mm. I would – one of my one of my friends, Dirty, you know, um, that's what he went by. He's a white guy from somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> and he was uh, our roommate. None of us had well, – none of us had, like, Max. But he did. So he would let us, like, once he went to sleep, he was like, I'll just leave my door open. You guys can come borrow my Mac. So every night to kind of deal with my depression, I would go and grab his computer and I would go from, like, 11 o'clock till 4.30 or 4.15 with some of my friends. Mm. And we would just write songs and record ourselves, not really for the purpose of ever putting them out, but just to, for me, it was just a part of processing my pain. Eventually, like, my friends stopped showing up and it was just me, you know, and so I, I just kept doing it. Um, I was in gospel choir in college. Um, that's kind of where I fell in love with gospel music, with like the black tradition of spiritual music and soul music. And um, I had a mentor who was a drummer and I asked him, which if you've ever asked somebody to be your mentor, it's kind of an awkward thing because it's like asking a girl out on a date. Like you kind of <laughs> admire this person. Right? You know what I mean? You're yeah, terrified please, they're going to say no. <laughs> yeah. Please share but your brain, like, hey, your life experience. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything to give you. I just want to learn from you. So I yeah. was like, hey, would you mentor me? And um, he and the guitarist in the band, who's now his brother-in-law, uh, Steve Dukes and Thomas Egler were their names. So uh, they they actually had produced for Twister before. So they were music producers mm. and they had worked with a lot of different artists. So to me, that's like, oh, wow, these guys are really in the industry. And again, I'm in college studying music, at, uh, excuse me, elementary education and sociology. So I'm like, but I'm fascinated by music. I love music. I grew up doing it. So they ended up um, allowing me to come and record some songs with them. 
And, um, you know, Tom was my mentor. So we ended up kicking it and I worked, he has a production company, like a, a media production company. And I traded a summer's worth of work to record an album. That album never Amazing. came out, but we did drop it. Yeah, we, we did drop an EP from it called No New Negatives. And that was my first project I released. And then we recorded another album together. That album didn't come out either. Um, <laughs> but one of the songs from that <laughs> album that ended up making it to the current album is Coffee Black, right? Um, so that song ended up coming from that project. And uh, so I, I had already recorded two albums, both of which didn't come out because I didn't have enough money to finish getting a mix or I didn't have money for the trumpet players I wanted because I was I was fascinated with, you know, this black spiritual music. And so I yeah. loved all the live instrumentation, even though I grew up in the South listening to Three Six Mafia. So I was like really, fa- again, imagination, like what would, ha- what would these two things, you know, I had this concept for an album, which, which was like if hip hop was rich, like hip hop was created in poverty um, because there was no, they removed the music programs from the schools in New York and in the Bronx. And so um, kids who were musically inclined were forced to innovate and use samplers and and become disc jockeys. And you had this whole culture that was birthed out of not having things. I was like, yo, what if those kids did have instruments? Like, what would hip hop sound like? You know, what if those kids had access to? So, like, again, this imagination was a big thing for me. So I was like, then I started fusing, like, okay, what would it sound like if this was in the South? And like, so this fascination with music was a big part of me. I had recorded two albums. Albums didn't come out. And so I eventually realized I had to learn how to produce myself. And so I started learning more production. Um, and so all the songs on this series called On the Spot, of one of which I sent you, I produced myself. And so I was really feeling like, okay, I, awesome. I can put these joints out. I found some collaborators. Um, you know, the mix isn't the best or the most amazing, but it feels oh, real. Stop, it feels stop, raw. It feels stop. Memphis. It feels like the blues. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was yeah. like, really, I, I, was, I felt like I was making progress. And um, I had also gotten connected with an indie label out in California called King's Dream. And I wasn't on the label, but they had a Patreon where they would re- review your music and also give you like music advice. And so Ruslan, the guy's name is Ruslan, who's on there. And I really like the artists who were on there. And so I started collaborating with them. And I actually met my new engineer through that, through that program um, and started getting a lot of music advice and um, he was actually one of the guys I called Ruslan was, uh, the guy who owns that label. Um, when I lost my job, my teaching job, and he was one of the people to tell me like, bro, this is your opportunity. You feel like God is telling you to go full in on this vision. He's giving you like, take that chance. You're only going to get one, you know? And so, um, yeah, he actually taught me, showed me how to make shirts and a bunch of stuff. So, um, I was just like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And I met, uh, HD who produced a lot of the music on the album with me. Um, we would go over and produce stuff. And then I basically was able to just like take things I had been working on and had been able to finish as the business made more money. It started giving me a little bit of extra capital for me to invest in getting things mixed or paying for album art stuff. I couldn't pay for before. Cause I was really just asking people to do things for free. And so mm-hmm. a big part of my musical journey was actually like I had talent, but the actual infrastructure it takes to do music a lot of times oh, yeah. at this point was funded by my coffee company. Um, um, and it's funny cause the music basically is a commercial for our company. You know what I mean? Like oh, it's yeah. a commercial for everything we believe in. So all of our music videos and stuff, like I try to approach it as if I'm a separate brand and I'm trying to reach out to a musical artist and I say, Hey, we want to do product placement with you guys. So yeah, man, that was the whole journey. So like I said, I grew up listening to a lot of like earth, wind and fire. My pops was a trumpet player in high school at Overton college was a perform. I mean, Overton high school, which is a performing arts high school here in the city. And like my mom listened to gospel music growing up. And, 
Um, my dad was a big jazz fan too. So I grew up listening to like gospel music, jazz, um, and then in the context where you have the blues and, and trap music, or I guess crunk music at the time, playing in the background. You have Stax music playing in the background. Mm-hmm. So all this stuff kind of influenced me, man. And I was just, I did, the skill I had was I could rap. And eventually I learned how to produce. And so I could kind of bring those two skills of like sampling and rapping and songwriting into the mix um, and collaborate with a lot of the people who are in my context and some people who are, you know, like out in Cali and stuff like that in Chicago and was able to finally finish a project. So I knew I wanted to drop the album. Um, and for me, like everything is connected. So I was like, the, I'm not doing a company just to make money. I really don't. I, we really didn't make money for a long time. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> uh, I was like, I'm doing this because I'm passionate about it. Yeah, because I feel like it's a better way to do what I was doing as a teacher. It's a better way for me to control what my students learn, what information I present. I don't have to check any boxes. I don't have to do any, like jump through any hoops. I can control it and I can teach my students how to build their own programs and their own situations, their own businesses. And so the music was a big part of like all of the things I did as a teacher. Like every school I was at, I had, I started a hip hop club. You know, I would take my students to perform in different places around the city. We recorded a couple songs together. We would always freestyle and cipher together. We talk about life, our community, you know. And I'm not a big fan of like when rappers try to police um, the community. Like, hey, you people, stop doing mm. that crime. Like, I'm not a big. That's kind of whack to me. Um, <laughs> but I am a big fan yeah. of what's called. Uh, and again, this is the nerd in me. It's called the uh, the. Uh, Cogenerative dialogue, which was coined by a guy named Paolo Freire when he worked with indigenous um, farmers in South America. But it's basically oh, he was teaching them how to read. But instead of saying, here's my chalkboard I'm teaching you, he would create conversations. The community would generate questions. And through that, they would dialogue with their reality. They would say, well, I wonder why this is like it is in our community. And so for him, he would then do his lesson plans around those questions but for me i would say that's what we're going to write songs about right like i'm not going to tell you the right or the wrong answer we're just going to explore the world around us through music and hopefully we create a better world through that process and that's what i did with my company is like again it was a say a way like what if this happened or why is this this way and the album was the same way you know it was like me trying to explore different musical combinations, me trying to explore themes and questions that came. Because through the process of starting our company, like my wife and I have had three miscarriages. And so Mm. like, it makes it really difficult to care about posting on Instagram. Yeah, man. I appreciate that, man. We're, 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 we're healing from that process, but like, it was hard, you know, Um, my wife had to leave her job. So then I had to work by my, I I was working alone. Not yeah. alone, but I was the only income coming into the house. And as a teacher, you just don't make that much money. You know, I've had no. students lose their lives. And my, we've oh. had kids in our neighborhood get shot that we're building relationships with. And so, like, all these things, like, you know, my grandparents passed through this whole process. So there's been a lot of loss. And as I'm building this business, as I'm trying to create this music and this art, you know, we just want to positively influence the world to become, to reach the destiny we believe God has for it. And so, like, art was one of the biggest ways for me. Again, like, it's always been a form of mental health for me. Like, whenever I'm depressed mm. or, like, Creation. you know, when we had the third. Yeah, when I had that third miscarriage, like, my when my wife let me know what happened, like, we, I had to go to the studio. So, I, you know, I didn't go that day. But, um, you know, yeah. my wife knew, like, okay, he needs to go create. So one of the songs on the album called Shade is, uh, mm-hmm. is just me you know, going through that process. But there's a lot of moments on the song, man, where I was like, those songs got me through 
the most difficult parts of this journey we're on. And so like, you know, even in Africa, like one of the most interesting things I've learned is I've talked to uh, my brother Ibrahim, who's from the Aromo ethnic group. Um, he has a company called Aromo Coffee Beans, and he's taught me a lot, um, is how coffee has always been connected to music and art, you know? Um, mm. and indigenously, coffee is, is, is grown by these farmers, and then it comes to these co- cooperative meals, right, where they sort the coffee, these sorting meals, sorting stations. They sing songs of praise. Ethiopia is one of the oldest... Uh, Christian nations on the planet, actually. And so, like, you'll have people singing praises to their creator in their indigenous language while they're sorting coffee. There's ceramics, um, like this thing called the uh, jabina, which is how they brew coffee. It's a beautifully created ceramic piece. Um, almost kind of looks like a like a vase with a really tiny neck. Um, and that's how they grow the coffee. That's how they, excuse me, brew the coffee, right? So there's, like, art there. Then there's these things called finjaws which I just got from my brother, uh, Jonathan, who's Eritrean down in Dallas. And um, this is what they drink the coffee. Like there's all this beautiful art, there's music. They they burn frankincense as they as they make the coffee, which is actually one of the um, one of the spices that was given to Yeshua when he was born. Uh, if you know with if you're familiar with like the nativity story. Um, mm-hmm. And so like all these, all these different, these artistic pieces are connected to humanity and spirituality um, indigenously. And so as I am a person of faith moving through this and trying to understand my artistic expression, like I'm seeing coffee be a part of my creative process too. And I'm just seeing something really beautiful in that process. Like, I don't think there's a way for me to do coffee and just be like, Hmm, I'm going to, I'm going to sell some coffee and put my tie on. Marketing scheme. It's it's this creative, and and I hope, and what I think is it's going to be black, right? It's going to be creative. It's going to be artistic. It's going to be musical. These things have always been tied together. Even when we look at slaves, music was a part of their liberation. It always has been. When you look at Negro spirituals and field hollers, like these spiritual songs are also connected with paths to reach liberation. And so that's just like, you know, even the song you just play, Energy, for me is like, I'm literally explaining to my students in my head, on how to start a business. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Like, you yeah. don't need these other people's money. You don't need anybody else to tell you what you can and can't do. Like, we have the energy ourselves yes. to create a new situation for ourselves without anybody's help. Not because it's not right for them to help help us, because, sadly, I just don't think the help will come. Mm. Well, listen, Bartholomew, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share your story and your art and your creativity with us. Um, we're going to, uh, do the child of God on the spot live to end the show, but I want to make sure that people can order the coffee, order the merch, follow along with you. So where can they find you online? Yeah, man, they can find us at coffeeblack.com, but put an X where the O goes. So X like not from X. Um, and yeah, they can get our coffee. They can get our apparel. Um, they can get our music there. Um, all of it, man. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, and I cannot wait for this coffee to show up. I, I I know that it's shipped, so I'll let you know when I get it. I'll brew some up, send some photos. Hey, uh, okay. That's awesome. Well, listen, Bartholomew, Coffee Black, thank you so much. We got Child of God on the spot live. Thank you so much for listening here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If anybody asks me, y'all, saying who I am, who I am, tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. 
If anybody asks me, y'all saying who I am, who I am, tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. Yeah. They ask me who I am, like they don't know. They don't know. I take them on a ride like a rodeo. A rodeo. I live my life so clear, man, that's for sure. That's for sure. Just know that I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. The, Holy the world tries to insane. I don't live for the fame. I'm trying to live in it plain. Yeah, that's for Come sure. On, I live for the gang, staying true to the gang. Though it's hard to maintain. Yeah, I call that growth. These are my bars, I go home and come hard The vibe's strong with the squad The life seems odd, this is not a facade This is who we are, give praise to y'all Cause I'm a child of God If anybody asks me, y'all saying who I am Who I am Tell them I'm a child of God Tell them I'm a child of God If anybody asks me, y'all saying who I am Who I am Tell them I'm a child of God Tell them I'm a child of God. Uh, they wanna know who I'm supposed to be. They wanna know what it's supposed to be when they see a black man in the streets with two sons on his side. I tell them that I'm alive. I tell them I'm a child of God. Uh, I got my hand on the mic in one way. They tell me to stop. I can't cause I pray. Uh, I got that everlasting kind of bunny, fantastic, elastic, child of God action. If anybody asks me who I am, who I am. Yeah. I tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. Yeah. If anybody asks me, y'all saying who I am, who I am. Uh, tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them I'm a child of God. Tell them you ain't my daddy. My daddy. Yeah. Trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. Uh, you ain't my daddy. My daddy. Uh, Trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. Yeah, you ain't uh, my daddy. My daddy. Who are you? Trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. Uh, you ain't uh, my daddy. My daddy. Uh, trying to tell me who I can and who I can't be. If anybody asks you who I am, sing it. Say who I am. Who I am. If anybody asks you who I am. Tell them I'm a child of, 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 tell them I'm a child of God. Yeah, say I'm a child of God. Yeah, that's right. Woo! Yeah, okay, take 11. This is officially the end of On The Spot, season one. And we want to celebrate with you all the weekend of June 30th. We are having a concert, uh, a celebration. A, I don't know, man. This is going to be a vibe. So y'all got to come through. Um, details to be determined. I want you all to check it out. Link in my bio. It's going to be dope. Shout out to the whole squad who came through. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, we got Daniel. He's been holding down the vocals for a minute. Okay. We got Greg came through with all the arrangement. My wife came through with all the fineness, you know what I mean, and all the dopeness <laughs> and, and just the general dopeness. Also, shout out to M3, dopest engineer in the game. If you pull up and say, yo, man, we got a choir, <laughs> a gospel ensemble, M3 is the dude who can make it happen. Uh, also, shout out to Ethnos Coffee for the sponsorship and also shout out to reverb coffee they also had a sponsorship with us this season super dope 
season two starting soon, but we are officially in album mode, y'all. Concert mode. It's gonna be real, bro. We doing some stuff. It's gonna be dope. Drink your coffee, Black. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.